Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Currently, we are looking at the book of Colossians. I think this is the third week and into a nine-week study in the book of Colossians. Now, remember, the book of Colossians is what's known as a prison epistle. It's known that way because Paul was in prison when he wrote the, 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 the letter to the Colossians. Paul was in prison because of preaching the gospel. And um, his close friend and the founder of the church in Colossae, um, uh, Ephratus, came to him and reported to him some good news about the growth of the church in the grace of God through Christ, but also shared with him some bad news that some false teachers had risen within the church and causing believers to get their focus off of Christ. Basically, these false teachers were teaching that Christ was not enough for a person to enjoy the fullness of God. That Christ wasn't sufficient to give us the fullness of God. These false teachers, well, they taught that a person, first of all, needed to have some mystical insights from angelic visions. And then the believer would also have to follow a certain religious rules and certain religious rituals in order to receive a, a full knowledge of the blessings of God. We're going to get more into those rituals and rules next week. But basically, that these false teachers, they were working to diminish the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, the apostle just hit this topic head on and calls the church to embrace the supremacy of Christ in all things. Now in the latter part of chapter 1, in the beginning part of chapter 2, Paul becomes very personal in his letter. He begins to explain to the, to the church the nature of his work and the reason why he does it, this work of an apostle. And maybe the reason why the apostle is really getting more personal now is that these false teachers, well, they probably spoke ill against the Apostle Paul, saying things like, well, now, if Christ is supreme and Christ controls all things and Paul is his apostle, then why is Paul in jail? I mean, if Christ is really supreme and Christ controls all things, can he keep his apostle out of jail? He's planting these seeds of doubt within the believer's mind. Or maybe they said something like, listen, What's happening here is God is probably mad at the Apostle Paul. That's the reason why he's in jail, because he's preaching a fake gospel. And Paul is not keeping all the rules and regulations. And that's what happens when you don't keep the rules. You know, you get thrown into prison. So the Apostle turns very personal in this portion of the text and really wants to share his heart to explain to the Colossians, his motivation behind his ministry as an apostle. Today's text is from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24, and we'll continue into chapter 2, um, verse 5. Now, remember, when Paul wrote the letter, there was no such thing as chapter 1 and chapter 2, all right? It was a letter, all right? And so we're trying to capture uh, certain segments of it that we see where we can gain insights on what the apostle is trying to tell the church and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit trying to tell us. So let me read the text for us this morning 
Hear now the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which had been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who I have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one would delude you with persuasive arguments, Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That finishes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, two times in chapter 1, the apostle mentions that he was made a minister. Now, this word minister is actually the word servant, the Greek word servant. And so what we see here is Paul is a faithful servant to the Lord. Now, as anyone who has been called to the ministry knows, calling to the ministry is something that you just can't ignore. It's not something that you can just push aside. Now, uh, before Barbara and I were married, I told her that I was not going to be a minister. I told her I was going to be a businessman, I was going to make a lot of money, and I was going to drive a canary yellow Corvette. But it was only a few months after that that the Lord called me into the ministry, and I became a preacher man, eventually making a decent wage and driving a ruby red Mustang. Lord's been good, but not exactly what I had told her in our engagement period. My point is, is that you cannot ignore a call to the ministry, and this is especially true for the Apostle Paul. So let's just gain a little bit of understanding about Paul's calling. We recognize that before Paul became a Christian, his name was Paul. And that he was a violent persecutor against the church. His conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9. And we see that 
it begins by telling us that Saul, or Paul, was breathing threats and murder against the believers, between the, against the disciples of the Lord. In the chapters previous to this, we discovered that actually these persecutors, which many and most believe that Paul was the, was the leader of, were actually going into homes of Christians, dragging them out and throwing them into jail and persecuting them for their faith. Now one day, Paul was nearing the city of Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Now remember, Saul... Paul was persecuting the church. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But notice on this Damascus road, the Lord asked Saul why he was persecuting him. The Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, the relationship between Christ and his church is so united... That if a person persecutes a Christian, they are actually persecuting Christ. Now, we are the church, and because of that, we are Christ's body, which Paul mentions even in this text this morning. The church and Christ are one. It's the equation. One plus one equals one. We are totally united together with Christ. And this is a very important truth to understand for us to get a proper interpretation on what the Apostle is talking about in verse 24 of our text this morning. Now let me just revert back that three days after Paul has this dramatic experience on the Damascus road, the Lord sent a, a disciple by the name of Ananias to Saul, saying, telling him, Go, for he is a chosen a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Paul's suffering was part of his calling. It was part of the terms of his call as an apostle. And in 2 Corinthians, the apostle just gives us a, a, a short list of how much he suffered as an apostle. Let me just Read what he wrote there. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have slept, I had to sleep in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from the rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And that's just the short list. But notice in verse 24 what the apostle writes. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your namesake. For in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. 
in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. See, the Apostle Paul considered his many sufferings as a small price to pay in order to share the riches of Christ to the Colossians and to the Gentile world. Paul certainly did not believe that there is anything lacking in the atoning work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's not what he's referring to here. Paul understood that personal acts of persecution against himself were really personal acts of persecution against Christ himself. This is what the Lord taught him on that Damascus road. You persecute the church, you're persecuting me. I'm united with the church. And that's what Paul's saying. I understand the afflictions that I receive are the afflictions that are upon Christ. Because Christ and I are one. Therefore, Paul made the choice to suffer, to rejoice in his sufferings. And the reason he did that is because he understood the Lord's teachings concerning that topic. Paul understood the Lord taught, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul understood that the Lord taught, Blessed are or people, or blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all things against you because of me. The Apostle Paul understood when the Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is the reason why the Apostle writes, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Understanding when they're persecuting me, they're persecuting Christ. And I rejoice to know that I'm being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Yeah, Paul was a faithful servant. But what motivated Paul to be such a faithful servant? What motivated him to to endure such hardships like we just read about? Most of us today, well, we quit serving the Lord when we get a spiritual hangnail. For the church today, we don't go to to church if it's raining outside. So what motivated the Apostle Paul to endure such hardship against himself? What was going on in his life? Either he has a strong spiritual motivation or he's a wacko. Right? And I believe... What Paul is teaching in this passage is the reason why he suffers the way he does is because he's found the greatest treasure that life can give you. It's a treasure chest of Christ, and he wants to share that, those treasures with everybody he can. Paul found the treasure. He writes, of this church I was made a minister, or as we know, a servant, according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. See, Paul discovered the treasure of the riches of Christ, and he had to share that treasure with the world. This reminds me of the parable that Jesus taught where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, and when a man found it, He went and sold everything he had to buy that field because of that treasure. And that's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. He discovered the greatest treasure 
was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was willing to give up everything. He was willing to endure such hardship because he wanted to make sure that everyone was able to enjoy the riches of the glory of God through Christ. Amen? Paul tells the church of Colossians why he endured this hostility was because he had a stewardship of truth that was given to him by God. And this this had to be dispensed to others. It had to be put out to others through the preaching of the word. And then he goes into detail explaining exactly what that preaching was. He goes on to say, that is... The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God had appointed Paul to be an administrator of spiritual treasures. Paul had discovered the greatest treasure that this life can give us. And he wasn't going to hoard that treasure to himself. He was going to spend his life sharing the riches of the glory of Christ to the Gentiles. It's been said that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And in this case, this is one pauper telling another pauper where he found a treasure trove of riches. Now, Paul uses this word mystery, but it's not the way, the word mystery in the Bible is not the way we use it today. Today, mystery is something that's unsolved. I think there's even a television show that has that title, Unsolved Mysteries. Mystery today is something that is unsolved. But the mystery that is noted in the Bible is a truth that's undisclosed except by divine revelation. A truth that's undisclosed except through divine revelation. The fact is, is that to, to, to be, understand the, the mystery of God you needed divine assistance. That's the way it's always been. The mystery cannot be known through natural abilities or mental powers. And back on the day when Ananias came to the house where Paul was in the city of Damascus, we see that the Lord revealed the mystery to Paul in that house. And on that day, the apostle Paul, well, he got born again. And he discovered the the. the biggest treasure that life could ever and it was sitting right there in front of him but he couldn't see it until God revealed it to him now remember Paul was a highly educated and politically powerful Pharisee but he couldn't see the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ until God lifted the scales from his eyes and brothers and sisters that's what you call getting born again is you were blind but then God removed the scales from your eyes and you saw the beauty of the gospel. It was there all the time. You were stumping your toes on it all the time. But there was one miraculous day when God divinely revealed to you the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is in you, your hope of glory. 
When you go back to chapter 9 of the book of Acts, you see immediately after the scales were lifted from, the apostle, the, from Paul's eyes, immediately he went into the synagogues and started preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. And everybody was amazed. Isn't this the guy that came to arrest all those Christians? But he kept on increasing in strength, and he kept on proving that Jesus is the Christ. You see, immediately after God showed him the treasure chest sitting right in front of him, immediately Paul had to start sharing that treasure with others. God had revealed the riches of his grace to Paul, and Paul will spend the rest of his life sharing those riches to others. And brothers and sisters, we see in this text that Paul summarizes the riches of God's grace when he writes, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery that had been hidden, that you need God to divinely reveal to you is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The, the riches of God's glory. Now just get that, that. I know that sounds spiritual talk, but we're talking about God here. The riches of God's glory. So everything God has, everything God has. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about God. Everything God has can be summarized in this statement. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's as if the apostle opens up the treasure chest, and in there is like one of those rings that the U puts on their fingers when they score a touchdown. But it's this big thing, and it's just blinging out at you, and it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I know this phrase sounds anticlimactic. I mean, can't Paul say something more than that? If you're going to summarize it, I mean, come on. Doesn't Paul need a marketing agent here? Well, maybe we think that way because we've been so decentralized from the gospel. Maybe we've grown so accustomed to the message of the gospel that we're not shocked by its beauty anymore. We've grown so accustomed to the gospel that we're not shocked by its beauty Paul says that in this treasure chest of God's grace is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I think so many times we look at it like a dirty penny instead of rejoicing that we found the greatest treasure. So let's unpack this just for a second. Let me do my preacher job here, okay? First, Christ. Christ. The one who is the image of the invisible God. Christ. The one who is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of the Father's nature. Christ. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ. The one in whom all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ, the one who has disarmed all powers by triumphing over them by the cross and is seated at the right hand of God. These are the statements that Paul has said about Christ in the book of Colossians. He's saying that Christ, that Christ, that's the guy I'm talking about, is in you. (laughs) 
The image of the invisible God is in me. The one who is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature is in me. The one in whom all is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is in me. The one for whom the fullness of deity dwelt is in me. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Notice Christ in you, not among you. He's not some hovering spirit or something. It's, he's in you. He's in you. What does this mean? This means that all the accomplishments of Christ are yours. Christ is in you. Everything that Christ is, is in you. The righteousness of Christ is ours because we are in Christ. The obedience of Christ is ours because we are in Christ. The holiness, being holy, we are holy because we are in Christ. We are alive to God because we are in Christ. We have a radical solidarity with Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And we, Christ, in Christ in us, we enjoy this abiding relationship that Christ abides in me and I abide in Christ, as Jesus says, that Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, that's the solidary reality of the believer. And Christ is in you. His, I'm not righteous. I'm not obedient. I'm not holy. <laughs> but I'm all those things because Christ is in me. That's what Paul's saying here. It's a treasure trove of truth. And Paul goes on to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when the Bible uses the, the, the term hope, it's not talking about a hope so or maybe so. It's not like when you were in, in high school and you say, you know, I'm going to ask that girl to the prom and I hope she says yes. <laughs> it's not a hope so or a maybe so. When the Bible uses the term hope, it's almost, almost synonymous with when the Bible uses faith. But hope is, is a, means confidence, security, full assurance. As the writer of Hebrews says it like this, this hope ha, we, in this hope we have an anchor for our souls, a hope of both sure and steadfast. A hope that is both sure and steadfast. So he's saying, listen, with Christ in you, this truth that everything that Christ is is in you, this you should have full confidence about. You should have full assurance about. That's part of the treasure trove, that you should have full confidence that that is truth, that that's gospel. So, and, 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 and it's this word, the hope of glory, this word is the Greek word doxa, which we get our word doxology it's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to translate it because it's used in such a variety of different forms in the scriptures. But let me just do it like this. Glory is the beautiful splendor of God. Glory is the beautiful splendor of God. Glory is the absolute perfection of God. So let, let's, let's put it all together. 
this, this phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is it saying? Here it goes. It's saying that the riches of God's grace is found in the discovery that Christ is the Father's all in all. And by his grace, you have been placed in Christ to share in all he is and all he has done. And this magnificent truth gives those in Christ full assurance to know for certain that we have received the beautiful splendor of God's glory through Christ and eventually we will enjoy God's perfection for all eternity in heaven. That's what that phrase means. I don't think you got it because if you got it, if you got it, there would have been a half the house saying amen. So let the preacher just back on up, back on up, and just hit this one. What this means is that the riches of God's grace is found in the discovery that Christ is the Father's all in all. And by his grace, you have been placed in Christ. And you share in all he is and all he has done. And this magnificent truth gives those in Christ full assurance to know for certain that we have received the beautiful splendor of God's glory through Christ and eventually we will enjoy God's perfection for all eternity in heaven. Amen. Amen. That's what Paul means when he writes that. This is the full gospel reality right here. This is the treasure trove of truth. And this was the driving force for Paul's faithful service to Christ and for his church. Paul continues, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Presenting every person complete in Christ. This was the reason why Paul would strive with all the power that God would give him. Presenting every person complete in Christ was why the apostle will struggle on their behalf so that they may be encouraged and see them knit together. Paul knew that all the wealth that comes from this treasures of wisdom and knowledge is discovered in none other than Christ himself. And Paul wanted the Colossian church to have a stability of faith in Christ and in Christ alone so that no one would delude them with persuasive arguments and get their focus off of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must maintain our focus on Christ. Christ must be our greatest treasure. Christ has to be our motivation for service. Sharing Christ with others has to be our highest purpose. Now, maybe we don't have false teachers trying to delude our faith. But let me just tell you, there's a lot of things in this world that wants you to get your focus off of Christ. It's so easy to do in this fast-paced social media World that just bombards us with images and statements and points of view. Maybe there's a problem in your life that you're facing 
And that problem has caused you to get your focus off Christ. Maybe there's a new opportunity that's been presented to you. And you're so excited about that new opportunity that it's gotten your focus off of Christ. Maybe it's a new relationship. And that new relationship has become the priority in your life. And you've gotten your eyes off of Christ. There are so many things that can get our focus off of Christ. But there's days like today where we can renew our focus and we can make Christ preeminent in our lives. The Lord knows we're scattered. But the Lord gives us opportunities like he's given us right now to confess that we've gotten our eyes off Christ, that Christ isn't enough for me, that it has to be Christ plus something else plus something else. And I've gotten my eyes off of Christ. And he gives us settings like this. This is the reason why he calls us together on his Lord's Day. And especially an opportunity that he gives us when we're able to receive the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus told us to eat and drink. On this table, we have the simple elements of our faith. Here we have the bread that represents the Lord's body and the cup that represents his blood, just simple symbols of our faith. And by eating these little morsels, by drinking this little cup, we're making a confession to ourselves and to the world that Christ is enough. Christ quenches my thirst and he feeds my soul. Christ and only Christ. Oh Lord our God, there are so many distractions in this world so many things that we allow ourselves to be distracted by. You know that about us. And so you give us opportunities like this where we can regain our focus, making Christ superior, supreme, preeminent in our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the truth that you are in us, our hope of glory. Feed us now, Lord. Quench our thirst for righteousness. Cause us to experience the stability in our faith so that we might proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.